Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. So this is episode six. We've made it. What we've got uh, this week is we're going to talk about Mobileye and the democratization of cartography. Uh, there's some words. Uh, <laughs> the, the new GM and Ford automatics, uh, nine speed and ten speed. We'll talk about both a little bit. Uh, comma Neo and um, some future predictions from Ford. And we've got some questions. Uh, so we'll get to all that momentarily. We have a nice, luxurious um, garage segment this week, uh, Sam. You're driving the Volvo XC90 T8 PHEV, which I have also driven, and I found it quite nice, but also somewhat disappointing. So, um, what's your take on it? Well, I, I first drove the um, the XC90 T6 uh, a little more than a year ago, and that's the one. Uh, it's it's got the uh, turbocharged and supercharged two liter four cylinder uh, with 315 horsepower, roughly, I think. Um, and yeah, I was really impressed with that one at the time. And this one adds uh, an electric motor at the rear axle and a nine and a half kilowatt hour lithium ion battery, uh, along with a plug, which um, nominally gives you about 14 miles of electric driving range. Um, in general, I really like the XC90. Uh, I like the way it looks. Um, it's got it's got some peculiarities about it, you know, ergonomically. Um, the uh the shifter what do you think of the uh the shifter i didn't like some of the ergonomic stuff the shifter itself didn't bug me what bugged me more was the weird little twist knob to turn it off and on <laughs> yeah instead of instead of a stop start button for the engine it it's got a little knob that you twist uh left to turn to shut it off and right to turn it on to start the engine but the um, yeah but i'm i'm sorry but the the, the shifter itself like it does feel like a step backward for Volvo because it, it's another one of these instances where they try to like uh, reinvent the wheel and fix what wasn't broken. Um, and so it is a little bit more confusing to use than, you know, the shifters we've known and loved for the last, I don't know, 50 years. Yeah. I mean, like, like most um, newer cars, uh, newer vehicles now, you know, it's, there's no longer a mechanical linkage you know the shifter doesn't actually shift anything it's just a switch it's an electronic switch and you know in this case it's you know a very stubby little shifter um that's mostly uh, i think i think it's lucite you know it's it's clear it's transparent you know i with believe some it's or crystal oh okay <laughs> well whatever it's it's transparent they're gonna and colorless. be pleased to know you think it's lucite that's awesome <laughs> okay carrying on well, sorry um and you know, you uh, you push it forward to engage uh, reverse, uh, pull it back towards you for drive um, or the low range mode if you want extra regenerative braking. But the odd thing about it is when you start, you know, if you push it forward once, it goes from park to neutral 
and then you have to push it a second time to get it up to reverse. Similarly, you know, going back if you want to go to to drive. So if you only push it or pull it once, like you do in most other vehicles with this type of mechanism, um, you know, usually, you know, when you go from park or and pull it to to drive, it just goes straight to drive. It doesn't go into neutral. You have to. There's a separate motion somewhere to get into neutral. And in this case, if you do the same thing, you end up in neutral and the car can start rolling away on you if you're not if you're not paying attention. Yeah, I find these new shifters like the new convention is rather infuriating, mostly not even because it's it's a new behavior to learn, but because it's it it's not as elegant. It's, you know, like you can't add simplicity. You need to remove complexity. I got that from HubSpot's uh, manifesto. I was reading it today. Uh, it's really nice. Um, it's completely not about this in particular, but I thought it was a, a really nice statement and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you can't make something easier to use by making it more complex. And that's exactly what Volvo has done. And that's what a lot of other manufacturers have done too. It's like, you've got now two hops to get it into the gear you want. Like in a clutch situation where you're trying to do a three point turn and you got traffic coming down on you and you're on a busy yeah, road or something. That's, like that's, that's actually a real problem. Yeah. Um, it's going to be confusing. You're going to wind up putting it in park because you overshoot or going to put it in neutral because you just get flustered and confused. And these are, I'm surprised, especially that Volvo did this because of Volvo's long history of, of making things clear and easy to use. Yeah. I mean, uh, of all these various types of electronic shifters, the, um, I think probably the design that I think works the best is the rotary knob, which, you know, was amazingly enough was originally done by Jaguar on the, uh, the XF back oh, almost 10 years ago now when they launched that. Yeah. Uh, and you know, in that case, you know, the, the rotary knob, you know, uh, when you shut off the engine, it would retract and be flush with the center console. And then when you started, it, it would rise up and you twist it. And it was fairly straightforward and, and fairly unambiguous as to, you know, which, what you were selecting. Um, and you know that a similar type of design without the, the raising and lowering you know has been a, a um, used by a number of manufacturers now chrysler uses it on a bunch of their vehicles uh ford's using it now uh so you know i think it's a, it's a pretty good layout um you know and and i think all of these variations or most of the the variations on the you know making the traditional shift lever electronic all seem leave something to be desired. And, you know, I don't know if you remember a few months back, um, there was an actor whose name escapes me at the moment, but he played uh, Chekhov Ant in the yeah, new Star Trek. Uh, Anton, Anton Yelkin, Yelchin, yeah. I forget how to say it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he was, he was, um, he, he was killed in an accident in his driveway uh, when he got out of his Jeep Grand Cherokee, which had one of these types of electronic shifters that, you know, he thought he had put it in park, but in fact, it was in neutral. And, you know, the, the Jeep just rolled. He got out to get the mail out of his mailbox and the car rolled down and crushed him. Yeah. And well, and so do you remember that like awkward couple years of shifter when they first introduced the eight speed in the it was in the 300 and the, the Grand Cherokee? And it wasn't in those models for very long. I think it was also in the Charger, but it, it was a pain to um to get it in the right right gear that was just it was finicky mm -hmm. I, I remember those um and that the, i agree the rotary knob is is really the, the sort of best way to um to to free up space on the console which everybody's trying to do uh right. and also maintain something that's that's 
easy to operate you know and i think a lot of people bagged on on jaguar because it has this extra motor to raise the thing and it's like you know jaguar's famous you know electric reliability thing rears its head or lack thereof yeah but i mean overall that's it's a very good implementation of it um yeah no and i i i suspect that you know going forward uh you know i mean over time you know the the original style of shift levers you know everybody kind of coalesced on a fairly consistent layout, you know, with the Prindle lever uh, for automatic transmissions. And I think, you know, over time, we'll probably see that happen again. You know, I mean, right now, everybody's kind of experimenting with what's the best way to do an electronic shift. Yeah. Uh, but I, so I, th- I think, you know, we'll probably see, you know, some, you know, manufacturers going back to something a little more consistent, um, you know, that, that works as they figure out, you know, which which ones actually work the best. Yeah, and I mean we've seen this before. Like it did take them a while to settle on the the Prindle layout. Um, there, there, it used to be a different uh, select, you know, a different order of gears, and then they decided to standardize. And you know, Chrysler had push button shifters back on the torque flights in the the late fifties, early sixties. Um, so you know, this stuff comes around every now and then, and and things get tried uh but besides beating up on the shifter that we've been doing for like the last 10 minutes uh what did you think of the rest of the xc90 oh i i like it i mean you know like i said it's it's a great looking you know big suv um you know very comfy seats as always in a volvo uh i love the uh the massage seat you know that that came in very handy the other day when i was driving back from detroit um and uh uh, you know, it's for such a big SUV, it's surprisingly fuel efficient. You know, I've been averaging about between 27, 28 miles per gallon. Uh, you know, when I come home, I just, I plug it in and, you know, so when I leave the house, it's got a, got a full charge in it. And, um, you know, the combination of the, um, the electric driving and the, um, the, the engine, you know, it's got the same supercharged and turbocharged four cylinder that's in the T6. Uh, it's, you know, it works really well. And, you know, one thing about this particular um, hybrid system, it's what's known as a through the road hybrid. So unlike, you know, the Toyota systems or the Fords and most of the other systems that are on the market where the electric motors are incorporated into the transmission. Uh, this one, you know, the front, uh, the engine is in the front, driving the front wheels just as it does in a standard XC90. And then. Uh, the electric motor is on the rear axle and there's no mechanical connection between them. So the only blending you get is through the road, hence the name through the road hybrid. Which um, seems like the, such a smart way to do it. Um, and I do have to say like the the XC90 T8, it, it, does, it is impressive, which I mean, there's like 400 something horsepower, which mm-hmm. it's definitely not a slouch. But also I was impressed with just the way it's it smoothly hands off and, and does its thing. And I'm assuming that some of that is because they don't have to try to coordinate two different power units through a single torque split device or, or whatever. Like it's just, you know, we're going to drive this set of wheels now and that set of wheels now. And, and it actually doing it through the road manages some of that that smoothness a little better yeah mechanically it's a lot simpler and a lot easier to control the one downside to it though is because you have the electric motor at the rear axle um when you're braking uh you know as when you when you when you slow down you get weight transfer to the front wheels so there's less um force less vertical force on the rear wheels so you can't you don't 
you know, it's the same thing with any vehicle. When you're braking, um, you do most of your braking is done at the front axle. So that means that you don't get as much regenerative braking and you don't recover as much energy back into the battery uh, during at least during harder braking. Light braking, you know, in typical around town, it's not going to be that much of a di- you know, you're not going to see that much of a difference. But um, definitely. Um, you know, you're not going to be able to maximize the amount of regenerative braking you can get with this type of layout. These are the kind of compromises that engineers are faced with. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, um, I mean, I think overall they did a pretty good job for something that large to return 27 miles a gallon for you. That's that's great. That's better than I did with it. I think I did about 24, 25. Um, but, you, you know, the original XC90 was not exactly fuel efficient it was kind of thirsty uh down you know the best you were going to do with that was probably low 20s yeah yeah definitely um maybe on a highway only you're going to start to creep up into the mid 20s so it's it's quite a jump because it's a it's a physically large vehicle and it's not like it's light so yeah um, i mean it's a big three-row suv you know plenty of space for people um one other thing about this one that the previous XC90 I uh, drove didn't have uh, is support for Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. Um, they've Volvo's now rolled that out into their Census infotainment system. And you know, if you haven't seen that system, um, it's an eleven. I think it's an eleven-inch touchscreen in the center, and it's in a yeah. portrait orientation. You know, kind of like the Tesla Model S, um, but smaller than the Model S. And so what they do is they use when you enable uh, Android Auto or CarPlay, uh, it uses the lower half of the screen for the Android Auto controls, and then you still get other controls in the top half of the screen. So, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I mean, it's it's some of the, you know, the the base (laughs) census system is can be a little bit uh, confusing to find some things. Um, You know, it's not uh, it's not the most uh, intuitive interface. Let's just say it's not it's not good. Um, it, it's not terrible, but it has, a I've seen worse. I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't crash or anything, you know, and it's responsive. It's just, um, the UI, you know, finding some of the, the features in there can be a little, um, complicated and take a little more effort than it should while you're driving. It feels, yeah, it feels like a system that, um, was designed by an engineer who, didn't really run it by user interface, user experience specialist or focus group or something. Cause it's, it's one of those things. And I get that sometimes in complicated software too, that's developed, you know, for engineers or by, by people who are very deep into it. And you, you say, well, like it, it doesn't work the way I work. And the, the question that you get back from the designers is, well, why would you do it that way? This is the way to do it. I was like, but that's, that's not the way I'm going to do it. That's not what I want or what I expect. I know it makes perfect sense, this one way to do it in your head. But, you know, I found it, um, it's a very sort of, uh, there's too many levels in there. Uh-huh. So it's not it's not flat enough. And it, it's almost like it's clicky uh, is how I would describe it if it were actually like computer software. It's just, there's too many steps to get to just a simple single uh, function. Um, and, and again, it's another area where I, I'm, I'm kind of shocked and a little disappointed in Volvo because there's their ergonomics has been, you know, really the sort of the class of the industry for for decades. And and uh, Census is just, you know, Census until the XC90 didn't have as many functions in it. Now that they've put so many different pieces in there, like, yeah, it keeps the center console nice and clean, but. All of the climate functions are in there. All of the infotainment is in there. Navigation, like 
it's doing everything and it's not necessarily doing it all that well. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, you know, um, the, the issues that uh, we have with it are largely software related, you know, so mm-hmm. they could, they could do a redesign and, you know, do an update, do a software update in these vehicles to give a better user interface. You know, so unlike say, for example, um, some of the early uh, my Ford touch systems that, also had performance issues. Um, you know, they didn't have enough power and they, you know, they were unstable and crashed a lot. That isn't a problem here. So, you know, if Volvo, you know, wanted to go back and rethink some of the user interface, um, you know, I think that they could deploy an, a, a software update that would improve that, you know, and, and surface some of the most frequently used functions in the interface a little better so that it's easier to use. Yeah, I agree with that. And it was, to me, it was one of those things, too, like it took almost the entire week I had the car to really get somewhat comfortable with it. So it's not like it's this, it's a, just a quick learning curve kind of thing. It's it's legitimately kind of confusing to use. Um, yeah. But, one, you know, the, one other, the, the, the XC90, I was going to go ahead. Go ahead. One other thing about this one. Um, this one has the second generation Volvo Pilot Assist. Um, when I previously drove the uh, XC90 a year ago, it still had the original version that worked up to about 30 miles an hour. And, you know, that one I found not to be terribly reliable. Um, for example, you know, it would disengage when you were crossing an intersection, um, which made it, you know, not terribly <laughs> it's, useful. It's not, not all that assisting. <laughs> and, and even, even on, you know, on a, a freshly paved uh, and freshly painted road that I live on, um, it had difficulty recognizing the lane markings. Uh, so, you know, this updated version now works up to speeds of about 85 miles an hour, I think. Uh, and it works a lot better. It's still not as good as, say, Tesla Autopilot in terms of tracking uh, the lanes on, you know, when you're driving on the highway. Um, you know, on a straight line, it works fine. But um, when you come to curves, um, it's not a, it's it's more reluctant to try to follow a curve on its own. Um, so you do, you do have to keep your hands on the wheel, you know, it'll, it'll assist, but it won't, it won't try to really auto steer the way a Tesla does. Do you think that that's by design? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that was, that was absolutely the Volvo engineers intention. They did, they did not, they were not ready at this point for this to be a hands-off design. And, you know, so they, you know, I think that they deliberately did this, you know, so that, um, customers would not get into the kind of scenario that they that many Tesla owners get into, where they become overconfident in the capabilities of the system, um, you know, and then they end up doing things that they shouldn't be with with the system. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a that's a good trade off at this point. Um, so, in my garage, <laughs> um, I, well, first I, w- I want to have a geeky little rant for a moment about the the Ford Focus that departed this week. Um, do we do we have time for that? Yep. We always have time for for okay. your rants, Dan. All right. <laughs> uh, you should talk to my wife. Um, anyway, uh, so all right. So, are you familiar with um, the purpose of a of a compressor in terms of audio processing? Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So, for the audience who's not, uh, a compressor is it it reduces the dynamic range. So, um, it it makes the loud stuff softer and depending on how you set it it brings up the quiet stuff it, it takes you know uh i'm trying to think of a good analogy it's like a sponge right like it basically got, tries to get everything closer to the same volume level yeah it's it squeezes it um yeah. so 
that's fine. I love me some compressors. I use them all the time. They're one of my favorite tools. Uh, limiter is very much like a compressor, except for it operates mostly on peaks and it's it's more aggressive. It squeezes harder and it it goes it it it's much faster to act and then let go. Uh, so anyway brings me to the Sony audio system in the Ford Focus Titanium. Now, I drove this car for like a week and it was, you know, it took me a day or two to realize what was going on. Because, you know, at a certain point in, in my drives, I'd just be like, man, what is the matter with this audio system? And I just like to the point where I would just turn it down or shut it off. And I, I realized what I was hearing. And it was something that and I blame Sony for this, not Ford, because this is something I've heard from Sony before. Um, so what it sounds like what they're doing is they have a very aggressive limiter on the audio. And if you don't set these kind of tools correctly, um, they will cause distortion, even if they're done digitally. And that's what's going on is there's this, this uh, limiter or compressor on every source, or at least very much the radio, um, where it, it, it squeezes the audio, but then it, it releases too fast. and so it gets like halfway back to like not doing anything. And then it goes, Oh, Hey crap, I got to do something again. And it, it reengages. And that makes like an audible, like kind of static or crackly sound. Um, and it, it makes the sound, you know, very weird and squishy. I know I'm using these completely artistic, useless terms. Um, but <laughs> is it, there anywhere in there to disable that? Like, you know, I mean, is that part of, you know, a loudness control? I mean, that's usually what, right. you know, what you, you know, on a lot of audio systems, you know, you ha you'll have a loudness button. Right. And that's, that's what I look for. That. Right. Yeah. And, and loudness is generally like often it's like, you know, speed compensated volume. Um, you know, loudness generally is like a, a Baxendall EQ that has, you know, a very wide curve and just gently lifts um, the low and high frequencies um, because of the way your ear reacts. And there's all this, this science behind it, but at low volumes below about 85 decibels, uh, sound pressure level, um, your ear doesn't react the same as the Fletcher Munson curve. It's whatever science. But, yeah. Um, so anyway, there's this really aggressive, non-defeatable limiter that is fatiguing to listen to, and it causes audible distortion. Um, so when you're in the car for a long period of time, you notice it, and it's really annoying. Uh, and I blame Sony for it because I've heard it before, and the where, where I heard it before from Sony was when they introduced the EX1 camera, um, which is a digital uh, video camera. It, it was This was a few years ago now, like 2009, 2010. Um, the company I was working for, I hate the EX1 for a variety of reasons, but its audio circuits um, are the main reason because it also had a non-defeatable limiter that would screw all your audio tracks from the field and you cannot really uncompress stuff. You can use an upward expander and play, play around, but it just, once it's squashed, it's done. And so I was like, that's what I'm hearing. And I hate it because I didn't like working at the company that had them. And I didn't, didn't <laughs> like the cameras and Sony, it's all your fault. So and that's this week's segment of car right. audio this week. I have exercised the <laughs> demons, but really, um, I, to the point where I like, well, I tried to find out like, who can I talk to at Sony or whoever else developed the Sony branded system for Ford to like figure out what's going on. Like, why do you have this algorithm on all your stuff? And it's, it's clearly obnoxious and bad. And anybody with a set of trained ears knows what's going on. Um, it might not bother most people, but it's really obnoxious once you figure out what you're hearing. But they, they made up for that with the, the fleet because they dropped off a, a 2017 Kia Cadenza um, Limited. This is a really nice car. Like, really, really nice. Um, 
you know, Kia, Kia learns really fast. So I was thinking about this as I drove it today. Um, the first sort of Kia luxury sedan attempt was the, um, the Ambanti, right? It was just this. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Funky, funky thing. Uh, that was not good. <laughs> um, I mean, it wasn't terrible, but it, it was. No, that, that's, that's be true. It, it was ter- pretty terrible. I, it was, it was, it was not noteworthy. It was, shall we say. That's, it was one of the last, um, I think it was one of the last Kias to debut before the Peter Schreier era uh, yes. of design at Kia, you know, and it had a, a very, um, you know, kind of Baroque upright, you know, yes. sedan design, you know, that was, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a type of car that was popular uh, in South Korea in the seventies and eighties um, among, you know, executives, but, you know, frankly, it, you know, it was not particularly attractive and, and like most Kias of that era yeah, I mean, did, did not drive very well. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, well, it's kind of the kind of car that was popular here during the late 70s. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Um, but so they they went from that, um, you know, and the, I, the the cadenza is just just sort of like three hop, the third hop um, from there. It's it's really nice. It's uh, solid. The materials are fantastic. The design is good. It, it and they figured out ride and handling. It drives really well. Um, I'm I'm very impressed, and you know some of the features in it, you know, because it it competes now with like the um, Toyota Avalon um, is sort of its main competitor in my mind. Um, you know, I I think I prefer it. Uh, it it's I think it's coming in around forty five thousand dollars the way this one's equipped, and it's it's just really nice. All the stuff is easy to use. Um, you know, I I really like it's I can't complain. And that's that's not damning with faint praise like that's usually the line for me for Kia, is, especially when you start to get up in their fully loaded, like luxury contender cars is is like, oh, it's almost there. Um, I, I think this this one's there. It's, it's like a full on contender. You know, the three point three liter V6 is really punchy. The eight speed auto does its thing pretty unobtrusively. Um, all of the, the ergonomics are, are pretty easy. It has a nice button where you can shut the screen off at night, which, again, me, cranky old guy ranting. Um, I like that. Uh, and, you know, it's it's roomy. It's uh, comfy. It's got a big trunk. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm just uh, just recovering from the focus. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, um, I mean, you know, all, all of the recent Kias that I've driven have all been really good as well. I've been yeah, I've been really impressed with them, you know, including the. The current generation Sportage, the Sorento, um, you know the uh, even the the Forte Five uh, SX that I drove about a year ago, um, you know, <clears throat> was a you know lovely little you know uh, quick hatch, you know, two hundred horsepower, one point six liter turbo. Yeah, I've, I've just really liked the current generation of Kias, and and the Optima too is also a really good one. Um, I've I've got a Cadenza coming in a couple of weeks, you know, so I'll I'll give you my thoughts on it then. But, uh, you know, it's certainly a sharp looking car. I mean, you know, Kia's, Kia's des- modern design language, their, their current design language is, you know, I think it's just outstanding. I mean, they, they make some of the best looking cars, mainstream cars out there. Yeah, I love the way that they've basically, because they got Peter Schreier and, and his team, they've basically taken premium design and, and you know, put it in the mainstream. 
it's fantastic. You know, if you were to strip the badges off most Hyundais and Kias right now, they could credibly pass for, you know, something German. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I mean, it's certainly not- certainly they could pass for something that you know is much more expensive than yeah. than the price tags that they're charging for them. Yeah, and and you know they do they present very well. It's it doesn't really feel like oh this is you know something that's gussied up, but it's it's not going to last. Like everything inside this this cadenza looks and feels nice and doesn't feel chintzy. Uh, I mean, we drive new cars all the time, so I, I I don't know how well it holds up, but it doesn't feel like it's obviously just you know going to last until it's out of warranty and then fall apart. So that's, well, you know, I mean, in, in recent years, um, both, both Kia and Hyundai have been doing great, you know, in quality surveys this year, um, Kia and, and Hyundai came in uh, first and third in the JD power initial quality study. Um, and they've done well in the, the longer term durability surveys as well. So, you know, and, and they offer good warranties. So, you know, I, I think they're worth taking a shot on. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, and we've got a, a few Hyundais in the family. Um, you know, my brother-in-law, they've had, I think, four now. Uh, my mother-in-law has an 06 Sonata. They're, they've all been fine. Um, the uh, And it's not just having stuff, too. Like, that was one of the things where earlier, like, yeah, they had all the features, but they, you know, they weren't integrated as well or, or something. Um, you know, this has, has radar crews and, and all of that stuff, and it's tuned really well. So it actually... It, it works quite well versus like having it, but not really being all that good. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I've seen great strides and, and it's a it's a really good sedan. I'm, I'm very impressed. All right. So and its audio speak- system sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Sony. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, uh, it's a Harman Kardon. OK. Um, so, so anyway. Uh, you you'd mentioned um, back when you were talking about the the Volvo something I I mean I well, I guess it doesn't really match up but one of the articles you wrote that we wanted to talk about this week uh, is how everybody's sort of becoming a cartographer uh, and Mobilize is the leader uh, in that and it, it made me think they, of they ways want, let, let, no they want to be the leader they okay so they want to be the leader um, but then who doesn't not, right let's not make any endorsements until they want to pay us mobile if you have a few million dollars <laughs> sitting around we'd gladly accept it uh to call you the leader uh <laughs> or um, you know or at least you know i mean let's you know let's get this stuff into production and and see you know how well it really works yeah well i'm doing a terrible job of setting this up so why don't you set it up <laughs> <laughs> All right. So last January at CES, uh, Mobileye announced something called Road Experience Management, uh, which they are now in the process of integrating with, you know, they're working, they, you know, Mobileye supplies most of the camera sensors that are used by uh, auto, most of most of the world's automakers uh, for things like lane keep lane departure warning and lane keeping systems. Um, and, you know, the the key, the key to what Mobileye does is they they have a custom uh, system on a chip, a custom custom processor that does the image recognition. So it takes you know can their system you know they don't actually make the camera sensors themselves, the image sensors. You know they can their system works with camera sensors from any number of suppliers. Um, and but what they do is they take the images that come off those sensors and they you know they try to do the recognition of what's going on and you know, their secret sauce is in their software. And so the latest thing that they've added to their software is this REM that uh, it 
builds on what they've done before. Uh, you know, so the idea with REM uh, is as you drive down the road, you know, the camera is, you know, taking 30, 40 images per second. Uh, and then their processor is crunching through these and looking for and recognizing various targets and landmarks, you know, so among other things, you know, um, these systems will look for um, speed limit signs and other traffic signals, but they also look for, uh, you know, any, any sorts of landmarks that are fixed in place that aren't moving around, you know, so they, they, they look for things like pedestrians and cyclists, but they also look for, fixed landmarks like overpasses and trees and, you know, whatever else um, isn't likely to move very much. And what they want to do with that. And this, you know, keep in mind, this has not been implemented in any production systems yet. This will probably start coming out sometime later, 2017, 2018 in some production vehicles. But the goal is to be able to um, capture you know, this data about, you know, the locations, you know, so when you, when it captures this image, it also captures the the GPS location. And, you know, so now we know, okay, there's an overpass at this position, you know, there's this building over at, at this location and, and so on. And the idea is as you drive down the road, it's collecting data that will become part of a high definition 3d map. So that when we get to the point where we're, um, we want to have the cars start to drive themselves, they need to have this information because, you know, if you've ever tried to use a GPS navigation system in a place like Manhattan or Chicago, you know, in an urban canyon, uh, you may have noticed that uh, or even used your phone in those areas. You may have noticed that uh, they usually they, they very often uh, will put your location on the map somewhere, maybe several blocks or up to a half a mile away from where you actually are. Well, yeah, um, I mean, that's that's just a terrible I mean, it's such a bad environment for RF. And and that's what, what GPS well, it's, not, is. it's not even. Yeah, I mean, it's not even just RF. You know, I mean, GPS was designed by the military to help soldiers in the battlefield locate, you know, their, you know, get their position. Right. Um, Open battlefield, not right where you you don't have skyscrapers around. And, you know, the way it works is, you know, you get fairly weak signals coming from a constellation of satellites orbiting the Earth. And based on, um, you know, it triangulates off of multiple satellite signals and figures out your position. And as long as you're getting that signal straight from the satellite to your receiver, you can get a reasonably accurate result of where you are. Right. But if if you're in an urban canyon where those signals are bouncing around, um, the timing of those signals, you know, can get impacted if they're bouncing back and forth off these buildings. And the, so the calculation gets all messed up. Yeah. So, well, and it's like it's like trying to receive TV in town like that. You know, yeah. sometimes the echoes are, are, you know, more powerful than the actual direct signal and stuff, too, because of the way they propagate. So, yeah, it's a good time. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, as as everybody's trying to figure out how to make cars drive themselves, you know, I mean, one part of autonomous cars is the sensors that will make the, you know, the, the let the cars see what's around them. But, you know, they also, you know, in order for an autonomous car to be useful, it needs to have maps and it needs to be able to locate itself in space, you know, so that when you summon an autonomous vehicle, it knows where it is and where and where you are and can figure out how to get to you. Well, if the GPS location tells it it's somewhere where it's not, that becomes a problem. So what everybody's working on now is um, 
these high definition maps that you can use to uh, actually locate the car in space, you know, in, in, in three dimensional space on the road without the GPS or augmenting, you know, check, cross checking against the GPS by looking at these other landmarks that you've already got a database of. And so uh, uh, Mobileye is one of the companies doing this with their, their road experience management. Um, Tom Tom is also doing this stuff. They're doing it using Tom Tom has got their road DNA system that they're uh, generating these kinds of high definition maps uh, using LIDAR. Um, other companies, uh, Civil Maps is another one that um, uh, Ford uh, invested in this past summer. Uh, and they're doing something similar as well, using various sensor data to generate these maps. And then what will happen is um, the uh, as, as you drive down the road, um, the system will look for uh, information that's different from the database that it already has on board. So it's not going to transmit everything it sees because that would just get too unmanageable. You'd have way too much, you know, you'd saturate the, the wireless um, network. Uh, so what it'll do is, you know, you've already got some data in the vehicle and it'll look for anything that's new or different that's changed and then transmit those things up to mobilized cloud. Uh, that'll get cross-checked. You know, you get information from multiple sources to verify that, you know, that information is accurate. And then that gets distributed back to the vehicle fleet again. So your, your database gets updated. And Mobileye uh, estimates that you can get the uh, a high-definition map of the entire United States in about 64 gigabytes of memory, which is actually pretty impressive. Yeah, that that's... Um... That doesn't strike me as far fetched. Uh, it's so. Are they going to actually? What are they looking to do with it? Are they going to look to um, license their technology? Because it doesn't seem like it's got to be like a living, breathing thing, right? Like this, this map. Oh yeah. The, the moment you sort of disconnect it from that update cloud, uh, it becomes not terribly useful. Yeah. Um, no. It, it it is something that uh, that will be constantly updated because you know. Th I mean, you know, I, I talked about you know looking for landmarks that don't move very much. You know, but the reality is, you know, that sometimes those landmarks do move, you know, bridges get torn down, they get rebuilt, new bridges get built, new buildings get built. Um, you know, so there um, there will be changes over time. You know, it's just it's a relatively low frequency of changes that they're looking for. Uh, and then, you know, in addition to that, there's also, um, you know, the more real time uh, updates that they're you know, that these various companies are looking for. So things like traffic conditions, road conditions. Um, you know, if there's a construction zone that's blocking a, a lane, you know, things like that, information like that also needs to get transmitted and then distributed. And that that is the idea is that the, these various companies that are doing this will license it to manufacturers uh, to use in their vehicles to provide the guidance systems. Yeah, so it's very much like some of the other map providers like um, what is like uh, here that's owned by Nokia. Um and I forget some. Actually, of the here's here's now Nokia sold it earlier this year. Did they? Um, yeah, to a consortium of uh, Daimler, Volkswagen, and BMW. Oh, that's right, that's right. And and so here was based on was it Navtech was part of it. Yeah. So that like I used to see Navtech like they were a leading map provider for a lot. Right. Of they this got stuff. they got bought by Nokia about ten or twelve years ago. Yeah. And then Nokia sold it off uh, earlier this year. Um, you know, and all of those those map systems, you know, for I mean, here is probably the one here and TomTom are probably the two that are used the most by automakers for their in-car nav systems. 
And, you know, those maps are, you know, those are the basic roadmaps, you know, that are kind of two dimensional. They're starting to become three dimensional now with with topographical data uh, that are also used that we can talk about another time. But, um, you know, what they're doing, you know, that's the that's the the most static layer. That's the that's kind of the bottom layer. So navigation for for automated vehicles, you know, there's multiple layers of this. You've got the bottom layer of, you know, here's the roads and here's what direction the roads go in. Here's where they are. Here's where the intersections are. And then you've got this next layer, which is what the road experience management stuff from, from Mobileye is and what Civil Maps is doing and what uh, TomTom's doing with uh, road DNA. And then you've got the top layer, which is actually the, the routing and the guidance, you know, and then the, also the in between there, the, the real time stuff as far as accidents and construction zones uh, that changes dynamically. So you've got these multiple layers that will make up these navigation systems. Yeah. So do you think that, um, so Mobileye wants to be the leader. What makes you think that they may actually uh, become the leader? And th- I think the reason why I brought up you know, like here and Navtech and those other systems is like when those need to be updated, it's a it's a much more manual process versus you know something that's connected and sort of updates on its own. But what well, that's is- that's something that's going to be changing in the coming years as well. I'm sure. Yeah, um, you know, I think you know one of the advantages that Mobileye has is just that um, their uh, their image sensors are so widely used. Um, yeah, and they, you know, they work with a lot of manufacturers, a lot of the automakers use mobilized, uh, hardware already. Um, so they already, you know, they, they already know how to work with the auto industry that, you know, they have a, they have a position in the auto industry. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know that they will necessarily be the late, the leader, you know, because there's a number of, a number of players that are coming into this, you know, and I think that there's space for a number of companies to all play a part in this. Um, so it'll be, you know, I, I think, I think that they've, they certainly seem to have something that could be very useful and, and could work very well. So there'll be a contender. Yeah, at the absolutely. Very least. Um, well, we'll have to keep an eye on mobile eye. That's <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Let's just shift gears and talk about transmissions. Hey, I did. Hey, hey, now there's a segue. <laughs> Uh, so GM and Ford, uh, they they've done it again. The last time they did this, they developed a six-speed front-wheel drive transmission, um, and they went back to the well and they developed a nine-speed front-wheel drive transmission. And uh, at the same time, they also developed a ten-speed rear-wheel drive transmission. So uh, the these are getting out there now, and they're I think they're just sort of worth uh, chatting about briefly. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> the uh, the nine-speed, as you mentioned, is derived from the architecture of uh, what GM and Ford developed uh, almost a decade ago with the, uh, their six speed that they used uh, with their larger V6 engines um, and larger uh, four cylinder turbos um, that they have in, a, in a, uh, most of their front wheel drive platforms now. Um, and about uh, two or three years ago, they got together and decided to update that uh, to make a nine speed and also um to produce a new 10 speed for rear drive applications. So the, uh, the 10 speed uh, came out a few months ago, started production a few months ago. Uh, Ford is starting to roll them out now in the F one fifties. And also they're putting them in the new super duties. And then uh, 
Uh, it'll be going into probably almost certainly going into the Mustang next year. Uh, and GM has started rolling them out in some of their trucks. Uh, and also it's going in the Camaro ZL1, uh, this 10 speed. And then the nine speed uh, GM did a, a briefing on it on Monday uh, here in Detroit. Um, and it's uh, pretty interesting. Uh, they, they did some interesting stuff inside this transmission in order to uh, add an extra planetary gear set and some extra clutches to make nine speeds uh, and get it into the same package envelope as the six speed that it's eventually going to replace. And in fact, GM actually started uh, shipping cars, shipping the uh, Malibu with the two liter turbo using this nine speed uh, back in September. So they've, they've actually been on the road for several months already. They just never, never really announced anything until uh, just recently. And then um, presumably Ford uh, will be making some announcements in the very near future. Uh, probably, um, I would guess probably at the Detroit Auto Show next month, we'll probably hear something from Ford about when the first applications for this one. But I would expect uh, cars like the the new Lincoln Continental and, um, you know, some of the two liter turbo um, fusions and, and cars like that will be among the first ones to get the nine speed. Yeah, and it's not anything like the nine speed, the um what is it? The it's not a ZF, right? It's, it was designed partially with Gatrag, the uh, the one that Chrysler and no, Land that's Rover the ZF. It is the ZF. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's not anything like that, right? This is this is just basically a straight up planetary automatic. Yeah. Um. It's it's got uh, four planetary gear sets. Um, and uh, a whole bunch of clutches. Uh, it's all electronically controlled. Uh, supports both uh, mechanical shift linkages and total electronic linkages like we talked about earlier with Volvo. Um, and one of the interesting things they did in there um, in the uh, between between the uh, in the first in, between the first and second gear shift, um, you know, typically most automatic transmissions have um, a one way clutch and then uh, a two way clutch or a standard clutch uh, that they use in combination uh, to give you coast down and, and things like that. And what, uh, what GM designed is they, they designed a selectable one-way clutch mechanism that combines the functionality of those two things into one unit and actually allowed them to make the transmission an inch narrower than it would have been otherwise. So that's how they got it into the same package size as the six speed. So that means that they, anywhere where they use the six speed today, they can just drop in this new transmission and it'll fit. They don't have to re-engineer everything around it. And that's kind of important when you've got a bunch of cars that you're looking to get efficiency gains out of, but you've already engineered that engine bay and there's just not the space necessarily for something larger. You know, it's not like the old days where you could probably shoehorn stuff in like the, the, these are pretty tight packages now. Yeah. Uh, most of the space is accounted for. So uh, and you're seeing uh, Porsche's doing the same thing. Uh, they've re-engineered their gearbox, um, added an extra shaft in there, yeah. and, um, did a bunch of stuff. But the package size is, is the same, um, which means that, you know, even without a full redesign of the car, you can make a significant change to its efficiency by, by changing this transmission that fits in the same space. Right. And so, you know, nine speed, uh, you know, I talked to, uh, the, the GM to Chris Marr, uh, from GM, uh, who's the, uh, uh, executive chief engineer, I think for transmissions, um, about, you know, what, what's kind of the, what's the upper limit, you know, on the number of gears in an automatic transmission and really for, 
front-wheel drive cars, you know, nine is probably going to be the upper limit, the practical upper limit, you know, because then, you know, as you, as you add more and more ratios in there, the incremental improvements in fuel economy get smaller and smaller. And also just trying to pack all that hardware in there, it just, you know, it's not going to pack, you're not going to be able to package much more than nine in there with the, the longitudinal layouts, you know, for the trucks and rear wheel drive cars, you've got a little bit more space to work with. Although even that 10 speed, um, you know, they, they packaged that into the same space that was used uh, by the existing six speeds that, uh, that Ford had uh, in their trucks. So, you know, ha- having the extra gears, you know, allows them to have smaller steps, um, smaller ratio steps in, you know, in between the, in, uh, course uh, between the individual gears and then also have and still have a larger spread from low you know from first through ninth uh, a larger overall ratio spread so they can try to keep the engine you know closer to its you know efficiency sweet spot all, you know more of the time um you know kind of like what you try to do with a with a cvt a, con- a continuously variable transmission but it's um yeah, you know, it feels better tip than a typical CVT. You know, most people don't like the way CVTs feel. You know, when the engine just revs up to a, a speed and then stays there as the car accelerates. Um, you know, ha- having a step ratio transmission like this is generally more pleasing to customers. Yeah, CVTs generally feel pretty terrible. They're, I mean, they're okay around town. It's just yeah. that there are times where they're just Nissan does a good job with them. Yeah, um, and the the Honda CVTs have been um, pretty decent. But, you know, there's always situations where they're all just going to they, they're going to display their uh, constantly variable nature. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, driving these. I found driving the nine speed in the Chrysler's was kind of like, yeah, all right, whatever. Um, I you, you unless you count ratios, you kind of don't really know. And I think that's the point is that it's just it's designed in a way to have a ratio for all situations it doesn't mean that it uses all nine all the time clearly you know ninth gear is going to be a pretty stiff overdrive so uh depending on 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 that that ratio spread you know um it's it's maybe not going to use ninth much at all um but on the other hand yeah i mean it it depends depends on how you drive where you drive um you know the uh the way they've got it set up it it actually can use ninth quite a bit quite frequently um but it can also you know it's capable of skipping gears so it doesn't have to shift through all nine gears you know to go from first to ninth you know it, it depends on you know how hard you're getting on the accelerator um or braking you know so it, it'll it'll go through different sequences depending on the the current conditions the load conditions and how hard you're accelerating yeah and that's i mean yeah i hope that their programming has uh taken a step up not that it's been bad in some of the other transmissions, but I found that automatics now are really, really reluctant to give you what you want. You know, you've, you, you ask for a downshift and it, it pauses. Like there's this sort of like palpable um, deliberation. And I, I'm sure that some of it is like they've programmed the transmission to not downshift unless it's really clear that that's the intent because again, fuel economy, but mm-hmm. You know, as a driver, you know, I I came up driving cars that, you know, yes, they only had four speed transmissions. So, you know, generally, um, 
there's only one direction to go <laughs> yeah. that's down and they, they give it to you pretty quickly and they had all you know manual all all mechanical controls um so you give the pedal a squeeze the kick down cable tightens boom you get your shift uh where these things and it i don't think that the electronic controls make it slower by by their very nature i think that they're designed to make it sort of pause like that um because i find that when I don't get what I want, I push the pedal harder and I get like two gears instead of one. And so it's, I, I feel like there's kind of like that, that reaching for efficiency that you're, you're sort of, you're missing out on some of the efficiency by frustrating the driver. So. Yeah. I mean, we'll I, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't driven this one yet, so yeah. we'll see. But um, you know, they said that they, they worked really hard on, you know, trying to make it feel as responsive as possible to the driver, you know, but also keeping it refined and keeping the shift smooth. Um, so it'll, it'll be interesting to uh, see how it behaves on the road. Yeah. And as I've, and it's, it's good for a couple of miles per gallon of fuel economy. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the, the restrictions or the, uh, the requirements have not been backed off. So yeah, at uh, least yet, at least not yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of other dismantling to go on first. We'll see what happens on January 20th. Or twenty first. Yeah, let's just we'll just we'll just move on. Um, speaking of dismantling, uh, comma dot neo is the um, the open source. Uh, I guess it's the the source of the uh, the comma one that George Hotz was uh, in, going to introduce with his uh, comma dot ai uh, company. So it's just basically the source code for his self driving system. Uh, you can download it and you can get a bunch of other stuff and you can make your own car if you want to make your own self-driving car. It's not quite that simple, um, but it's it's kind of intriguing and it's an interesting pivot. Uh, you know, Sam, do you think you're going to download this stuff and, and get yourself like the one specific phone that it runs on so you can you can try it out? Mm, no, <laughs> uh, I, mean, you know, I, I, I spent many years, you know, doing this kind of stuff, you know, doing embedded software for vehicle control systems um and those those years are behind me uh so i i don't plan to, i don't have any plans to download this stuff uh but i'm sure that there's engineers at every automaker that's working on autonomous systems that have already pulled that code to take a look at what uh what hots was doing so do you what do you think they're going to find i mean i i pure speculation of course but my my suspicion is that uh he's making he's making it he's oversimplifying it. Like it's just making it seem easier than it really is. Like he, he, I think you even said it. He, he sort of took care of all the easy stuff. And now the, the hard part is making the system like predictable and reliable and all of those things that just weren't there. Yeah. I mean, you know, with, with any kind of control system like this, um, you know, the, the basics, the fundamentals of making it work are usually the, you know, fairly straightforward, I mean, you know, some, I mean, occasionally there, there's problems that are much harder to, to, to do, but, you know, in this case, you know, something like what he's, what he was trying to do here, you know, make a car, you know, follow the, the lane markings and, and drive down the road by itself. You know, that part is pretty, pretty straightforward, you know, at its core, but it's all the other stuff around that, you know, like recognizing, you know, predicting what other cars are going to do, recognizing pedestrians and cyclists and potholes and, you know, uh, animals that run out in front of you. Those are the those are all the things that make the problem a lot harder. Yeah. And it, I guess, though, having this out there 
it may get there. And it's kind of like the the new version of hot rodding, I guess, in, in a way where you've got this this solution that is developed um, completely outside of the, the automakers. But you can you can sort of roll your own self-driving car. I mean, yeah, and there's plenty of companies doing it, you know, like Newtonomy um, and uh, you know, so there's there's a few other companies in in Silicon Valley that are working on this stuff. Uh, you know, Cruise Automation was doing this, and they got bought by GM for what may have been as much as a billion dollars. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty of people out there trying to do it. Yeah, I mean, I just wonder if you've got your own uh, Honda or Acura vehicle that this stuff will work with, and you've you've you know invested in the uh, what is the phone? There's just one particular yeah, phone. I forget which phone it was uh, it's it's in the the story that was published on uh oh the one plus three yeah um it's and so it's yes the source code is available but it's still there's still a lot of work you have to do to get it like up and and running and you're gonna you're gonna hack your car a little bit to do it um yeah i mean you're gonna have to tap into you know you, you need to have a car that's already got um the lane keeping and um adaptive cruise control system on there and then uh, you take off the the camera module that's mounted on the windshield, and it actually plugs into the um, the wiring harness where the the lane keeping camera normally goes to get into the CAN bus on the car. Uh, so that's how it actually controls it is through that connection on the windshield. Yeah, I mean, you know what? He's got chutzpah. I I I like this guy. He seems a little bit like a loose cannon, but that's all right. You know, he's uh, <laughs> a little loose. Yeah, I mean, he's he's basically saying, you know, the uh, NHTSA can't really regulate this because open source software is pretty much free speech. Um, and if the U.S. government doesn't like the project, I'm sure there are plenty of other countries that will. Uh, again, like that's just a yay. Hooray for the entrepreneurial spirit. Um, <laughs> I I want to see where it goes. I do. Yeah. Um, you no, know, and, and I'm sure that, you know, there's there's already, like I say, a bunch of people that have already downloaded it and are, are you know. Uh, going through the code, trying to figure out what it's doing and and how to make it better. Yeah. Well, and so, you know, we'll keep an eye on that one. And as long as we're predicting the future, uh, Ford was was doing that on their own. They just released uh, their their futurist, uh, which is an actual job at Ford Motor Company, is uh, Cheryl Connolly. And so for the last, I, I want to say it's like five years or so, uh, they've been releasing a future report, um, basically projecting the trends that they think are uh, going to be noteworthy um, going forward. And I think it's kind of funny and we can talk about some of these, these trends, uh, that, that really sort of the high points. Um, but of course these trends line up really beautifully with what Ford has already committed that they're going to do it. I mean, gosh, what a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, uh, I mean, if, if you, um, you know, if you go through the, the ver you know, these various uh, iterations of this report that Cheryl has published over the last several years. And I, I, I know Cheryl, I've, I've met her and, um, you know, talked to her on a number of occasions. Um, you know, what, you know, the, the, uh, the trends report that she publishes every year is not actually looking at automotive trends. I mean, you know, she's, you know, she works for Ford, but she's, um, you know, she and her team, aren't really looking at automotive trends they are looking at larger societal trends and trying to figure out how that's going, you know, what, what is, what is going on in society? How is society changing? And then, you know, Ford, you know, looks at that and says, okay, well, how, you know, what do we have to do as a business 
to fit into the society. You know, and so that's the sort of thing that, you know, is driving Ford's current, you know, the, the, their recent efforts, you know, in mobility, you know, the establishment of smart Ford, smart mobility, mobility, LLC, and uh, the things they're doing with autonomous vehicles and um, ride hailing, you know, and all, all these other things that they're working on. Um, you know, and the, the latest edition of the uh, trends report that just came out, um, you know, one of the, you know, one of the more interesting aspects of it um, that I've found is, uh, you know, this idea of, you know, trust is the new black. Yeah. And, um, you know, what, you know, what she found from her studies is that, you know, increasingly uh, consumers are, you know, <laughs> amazingly enough, distrustful of corporations, governments and the media. Uh, <laughs> and, and, becoming, and becoming more so, um, you know, I, I can't imagine why, but, but we're, we're a nation of skeptics and that's okay. We've been taught to uh, sniff out the bullshit, right? So yeah, well, we've been taught, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, I think, um, while we may, you know, while we may see that there's bullshit out there, we don't necessarily, we aren't necessarily very good at recognizing what is actually the bullshit. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's true, <laughs> you know, um, but you know, that's a whole other thing, but you know, just this whole idea of trust being so important, I think is actually one, one of the things about that, that I think is critically important. You know, if, if we're ever going to going to deploy autonomous vehicles, um, it's going to be important. It's going to be critical that people are actually able to trust these things and trust that they will behave in, in the the way that they expect. Um, and, you know, last year when this whole Volkswagen diesel uh, scandal broke, you know, I wrote, uh, I wrote a couple of different articles about this, uh, you know, and one, you know, one of the, the themes of that was that, um, you know, trust, you know, the, 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 the real danger of what Volkswagen did is not so much, you know, what it might do to people's perceptions of diesel engines, you know, or, or anything else, but it's actually a, a, a potentially larger problem around this idea of trust, because what Volkswagen did was done entirely in software. You know, you, you hear, you always hear everybody referring to the defeat device that they used, but there's actually no hardware device that was in those vehicles. What they did was they, they did something in the software that allowed it, allowed the system to cheat and nobody caught it. And, you know, if consumers feel that, you know, OK, here's one company that did this, you know, they cheated using software, you know, for something as relatively benign, you know, compared to autonomous vehicles, uh, you know, of cheating on the emission controls. What happens when you get a car that's cap fully capable of driving itself and you start doing things in there that could be a lot less benign, you know, if the car starts to run people down, you know, or, you know, doesn't, doesn't behave properly. You know, so trust is, is a real critical issue here. Um, and, you know, I think it, it's, you know, it's definitely a good point for her to be making in this report. Yeah. And I, I agree that, and I think we're, we'll get there too. Like I'm not so worried about trusting the, the engineering um, and uh, refinement that's gone on. Like, I feel like when these companies that know they're exposed to uh, lots of liability by re re uh, introducing uh, autonomous cars that people are going to <coughs> naturally rely upon, 
they're they're going to have done their homework. Um, it's it's more of the smaller, you, you, the one that freaks me out a little bit more, and the, 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 is the the sort of DIY solution that we were just talking about, like that that sort of George Hotz. Yeah, kind I mean, of do thing. do you trust George Hotz? No, <laughs> <laughs> and it's not because I don't think he's untrustworthy. It's just because he doesn't have the resources. He's he's one guy. You know, it's it's the same as. Uh, you know, you're watching Tesla. You should get get some of its lunch eaten by General Motors and Ford and and you know these big heavily resourced companies with a diverse product offering. They have deeper pockets and they can sustain longer. Um, and it's not that they want to go out and crush Tesla, although I'm sure they wouldn't mind. Um, but they can they can do things and commit resources that Tesla just can't, and and George Hotz just can't. Um, so. Though, because of you know their their sort of vast corporate size, they know they have to get it right, and they will, because uh, otherwise they'll get their pants soon off and they'll they'll go under. Um, but does that have a chilling effect on you know those of us who at this point choose to drive ourselves? Like you know what I don't trust is that we're going to be able to share the roads uh, well with the self driving cars, not because I don't trust autonomous cars I'm, I, I already use automated technology and I, I feel like it's it's going to be you know 99.9% of the time you can trust that stuff um, it's the, the human factor that's the issue and when we're trying to share the roads I don't trust what, what my uh, you know sort of my, my I don't want to say colleagues uh, but my, my fellow road users <laughs> are going to do but you know we, we're the real unpredictable wild cards in that situation so i don't i don't trust that we can actually you know find that happy medium it's going to have to be all or nothing yeah i'm i'm inclined to agree with you on that that's all a right really dark thought yeah. <laughs> um yeah i mean it, but ford's ford's predictions are kind of interesting um and they're, yeah they're and like out. i said you know i mean she she doesn't you know predict that you know she doesn't make predictions about you know what kind of cars we're going to be driving in in 10 years but it's, you know, it's these larger societal trends and how that might impact the way we move around. Yeah, I, I do love the idea um, that they, they say punctuality is a dying art and that procrastination is a strength. Um, I, I love that procrastination is it can be a strength thing because that's I do my best work by backing myself into a time corner and just like then I have to produce. It's, it's uh, a terrible. Yeah, and frankly, you know, I think I think most creative people do that you know i think a lot of i mean i know i do a lot of a lot of writers are like that you know they they spend time you know mulling over things or they'll you know they'll they'll get the germ of an idea and go off and do something else and then you know at the last minute you know as it all comes together they'll they'll sit down to do their do their story or do their video or whatever it is they need to do right and you kind of come away from that going like oh if only i had an extra three days it's like well stupid you had an extra three days but you decided not to use it <laughs> but it, look it's just how the process goes it's um i'm pleased to see that i'm not such a freak um all right well we've exhausted our topics but we did have a couple of questions uh come in so why don't we hit those and then we can wrap it up and give your voice a rest all right. First off, uh, we got Zach with a fairly long email, but I'm going to I'm going to summarize uh, here. Uh, he's uh, looking he's he's started the process of looking for um, 
a new car to replace his lightly modded 2010 Genesis Coupe. Um, he's 31, no kids, lives in D.C. And uh, hybrid or some kind of electrification is attractive as well as adaptive cruise. Uh, Android and Android Auto are mandatory requirements. Um, I, he doesn't have access to a, a plug-in charger, so you know a battery electric or a plug-in hybrid uh, aren't uh, viable for him. Um, He's looking for something under thirty thousand uh, dollars, new or relatively new, um, and uh, he wants things like uh, LED or HID headlights, uh, good handling, quiet interior, durability, um, and uh, he's fine without all-wheel drive. And he he gave us a list of some cars uh, that he's considering, um, and right off the bat, you know, we'll disqualify some of these, uh, because he, he did say that Android auto is a must. So, uh, the infinity Q 50 hybrid, uh, is off the list because, uh, Nissan and infinity, uh, have not given any indication of if or when they're going to do Android auto. Uh, similarly, um, the Prius prime, uh, which I have not yet driven, um, Toyota has said they have no plans to do Android auto or Apple CarPlay. Um, and then, um, let's see. Then the rest of the ones on the list here, he's got the Ford, uh, Plat- the Fusion Platinum Hybrid, um, the Sonata Hybrid Limited, uh, a new or slightly used uh, Volt or Cadillac uh, ELR, um, and uh, the Accord Hybrid Touring. Uh, and then finally, um, he's there's also the, uh, he says, I know I can get a Mazda 3 or 6 or Honda Civic Sport Touring Hatch, Elantra, uh, all day long with my requirements. The question is really about the best HEV cars that uh, met my requirements for 30000 So what do you think? Uh, well, I, I think I know who this guy is, first of all. So what's up, Zach? Um, <laughs> second of all, <laughs> um, I was going to say, like, in my, in my head as I'm sort of tallying up the requirements, um, you know, the Honda Accord hybrid certainly fits that bill. Um, the Sonata hybrid limited is another good choice. Those are, those are two hybrids that drive quite well. And for me, the driving experience is, is kind of the key. Um, I also like just the regular Prius is a good driving hybrid. If Android auto is an absolute must. Yeah. And, and it's not going to have it. Uh, like you said, and 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 the Toyota system, the Intune system is just like it's not great, um, but it's it's OK. So if you if you can cross that requirement off your list, the actual the Prius is not bad. Um, and I think like the Fusion, I like the Fusion hybrid. It drives quite well again, but um, you're going to find a lot more utility, I think, in the Fusion because it's a hatchback. So I mean, in the in the Prius because it's a hatchback. Uh, so. I guess I'd say like everyday usable hybrid. It's really, 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 really hard to beat the Prius. Um, from a driver's perspective, I really liked the Sonata hybrid and the uh, Accord hybrid. The, the Accord hybrid almost feels like a luxury car in in touring trim. So, uh, you know, those those three are sort of it for me. Well, frankly, I think my choice out of all of these here. Uh, would probably be I uh, well actually um, the the I should have cross, also crossed the Volt and ELR off the list because uh, those are plugins and if he doesn't have uh, access to a plug for charging then those would be a waste of his time and money um, 
but the uh, the accord is really nice uh as is the um the sonata but frankly you know i'd be inclined to go with the uh, the civic sport hatchback um because you know it does have all of the things he's looking for you know it's got adaptive cruise control with the honda sensing package which is um you know honda only charges a thousand bucks for that package you know on any trim level of the civic um it's got android auto and carplay support uh it's a great handling car uh you know and a lot of utility as you mentioned with the the uh the prius you know especially with with the civic hatch you know with the you know, the, you got a big hatch opening in the back. Uh, you can fold the back seats down, get big things in there when you need to. Um, it's a lot of fun to drive. And, um, you know, the sport, you get a little bit of extra power out of the 1.5 liter turbo. Uh, and, you know, it's actually really fuel efficient. You know, it's it's not going to hit, you know, the 50 miles per gallon that you're going to get out of the Prius. Um, but it it can easily get. Um, you know, mid thirties combined and get over 40 on the highway. Um, so I would, I would seriously take a look at the civic sport, uh, hatchback. Yeah, I can't fault the civic. Um, can you actually get the civic with the led headlights as well? Um, that I'm not sure. Of. I may... don't, I don't think it has led uh, lights. Does it, I, I thought you, I don't know. I'm, I'm not completely up on Honda's lineup, but I, I was actually surprised about, how well their cars are equipped. Um, and, and one, one thing, one thing I really do like about Honda's implementation of Android auto that so far no other manufacturer is doing uh, is uh, when you're using uh, Google maps, uh, and actually the same thing applies for CarPlay as well. When you, uh, when you use the smartphone maps uh, for navigation, it will actually mirror the, the turn prompts in the instrument cluster you know, the same way that the embedded navigation does. So when you use a, a built-in navigation system in most modern cars, you know, when you've got a right turn coming up, it'll show you in the instrument cluster, you know, right turn at the next street. Um, and most of the, most of the time when you're using Android auto or CarPlay, uh, you don't, you only see those prompts on the central screen. You don't see them in the instrument cluster right in front of you. Um, Honda so far is the only company that's actually doing that and mirroring those prompts in the instrument cluster. But the, the downside is that you've got to put up with the rest of that infotainment system, <laughs> which is, I mean. Well, I mean, if you're using Android Auto, then, you know, I mean, that's not, you know, you're right. never really going to see that anyway. That's true. That's and true. It's, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not the worst infotainment system I've used. Okay. It's, it's, I, it's not good. <laughs> I'm real picky, apparently. But, you know, I mean, when I get a car with Android Auto in it, I, I only ever use Android Auto anyway, so. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's fair. I mean, that's why it's that's why it's there. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, if, if you want to have, you know, a better built in infotainment system as well, you know, then, you know, I would definitely recommend uh, Sync 3 and the Fords, you know, it, which is really good. Um, and actually, the uh, the the, uh, the Hyundai and Kia infotainment system is also excellent. Yeah. Uvo is uh, quite good. And it's funny because I think Uvo was actually like an earlier version of Sync in some ways uh, that. You know, once it eclipsed the licensing window, Microsoft's... Well, the, the original, when they first launched Uvo back in 2010, it was based on the, the Microsoft car platform, but they only did that for a couple of years and then they switched over um, and... So clearly, I that, don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, no longer, it's no longer using the Microsoft uh, embedded uh, car platform anymore. 
Uh, that makes that makes some sense given that yeah. All right. Well. All right. Let us know what you buy. Um and if there's any other guidance. Uh in the meantime, we we do have another and, question. And, and if this yeah, if the, and if this advice was like all the other advice we've ever given on a podcast, um I'm sure you'll buy something completely different. So Hey, we didn't say GTI or Miata. So there's that's, that. That's true. Yes. Okay. Um we did we did stick those, to the ones that were on his list. Right. Either one of those would also be a solid choice. <laughs> All, right. All right. So this one comes yeah, yeah. from uh, Jonathan. Uh, he says, uh, my question this week is, what's your take on the Alpha Julia Quadrifolio? Uh, turbo 4, 280 horsepower, all-wheel drive, turbocharged uh, edition. Will it grab a piece of the sports sedan market? Uh, will consumers like that it's got an 8-speed that shifts in 100 milliseconds? Uh, will BMW lease owners give Alpha a shot? Are BMW lease owners bored with BMW and Mercedes? And will they take this, that shot? Uh, will the 500 horsepower Quadrifoglio make M3 owners passionate for the Italian brand? And now the tough question, will the Stelvio CUV successfully take on the X3 and the very successful Porsche Macan and Jaguar F-Pace? Okay, so there's there's several parts there. First, um, what is your take on the Alpha Julia Quadrifoglio and Turbo 4 280 horsepower all-wheel drive sport TI edition. So well, what's your what's your take? I, I think uh, neither one of us have driven the Julia yet. Correct. Um, but uh from everything I've heard from people that actually have driven it uh in the last month or so since they started doing some media drives, um it's actually really really good. Uh so that will it'll be real interesting to to watch that. Um it, you know, will BMW owners be willing to take a shot on the Alpha? I, you know, I think we're just going to have to wait and see. Um, you know, I mean, traditionally, Alpha, you know, has not had a great reputation for quality uh, and reliability. But, you know, I mean, this these are very different from traditional Alphas. Um, and, uh, you know, the certainly the, you know, Fiat brand hasn't done great so far. Uh, you know, the, the, the Fiat 500 in yeah. its various iterations has, has not been, uh, the, the sell as big as anywhere near as big a seller as, uh, Fiat Chrysler had hoped. Yeah. But um, I mean, I don't, so that's part of my thought is like, it's not necessarily down to the car. Uh, the way Fiat has rolled out their, their, their dealerships here, um, has not been stellar. Um, right. the experience is not great. Uh, and they, they sort of rolled it out with, you know, one car. Now they've got three cars, basically. They've got the 500, the 500L, and the, um, the 500X. Uh, they're, not, they're not bad stuff. They're just, uh, they're, not, they're not really putting enough of a sort of diligence into it. And I think they actually had kind of onerous requirements from the dealer side of things to actually get a Fiat franchise, <coughs> um, you know, sell it. So I, I wonder how they're going to handle Alpha. Uh, on the same, you know, in, in the same way. Uh, y yes, I, I, the, the Julia is going to grab a piece of the sports sedan market, probably a very small piece, um, just cause they're going to be hard to get. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's probably gonna be some consumers that, you know, like the spec sheet racing where it'll, it'll shift real fast with the paddles. Um, yeah, I don't personally know that that's going to matter. <laughs> To a lot yeah, of them. you know, I think I think the the key is, you know, that like as I said, you know, from all I've heard, you know, it, the Julia drives really well, um, yeah. you know, so from a performance standpoint, it should be great, and you know, it certainly has, you know, that 
Italian style. Um, you know, so if you're looking for something different, you know, yeah. that, that isn't, you know, I mean, you know, BMWs and Mercedes and Audis are, you know, I mean, they're good, but they're, you know, they're pretty commonplace these days. Yeah. And, you know, I and agree if you want that. something different, you know, then the, the alpha is going to be the way to go. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's the same reason why people buy the Abart, right? The 500 Abart, because they don't want a Mini Cooper. Uh, same, same kind of thing. Um, and so, yes, there will be some that do want something different and they'll give alpha a shot. Uh, I don't think that the owners who are leasing BMW and Mercedes cars are really bored with those cars. I think they're leasing those cars mainly because they are in certain parts of this world. Um, that's, that's your Camry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is, you know, they're, they're, it's a status car. It's just sort of like the default choice for, for a certain group of people. Um, they lease them, then they, they're not really car people. They're, they're brand people. Um, I don't think they, they, they may, you know, if, if alpha successfully gives its, its brand a little bit of a burnishing when they reintroduce the, the Julia to this market. Yeah. It may get picked up by those people, but I don't think they're going to really go out and choose it unless like you said, they're looking for something different. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, my guess is it'll probably get a fairly small piece of the pie. Yeah. But I think that the, the people, you know, especially in the early years that go that way will probably find that they really like what they got. Yeah, I think so. And I kind of feel like it's going to be destined to be sort of a uh, a niche classic in some way, like depending on how they manage to do in this market. You know, I'm, I'm a little tenuous on whether they're going to stick around. Um, yeah. So, you know, the Julia may be one of those cars that comes and goes and uh, it has just a single generation or not even a full generation here. And uh you know, the Stelvio, again, like, yeah, it, it might. I mean, it's never going to be the huge player that the X3 is. Um, it's Everybody's crazy for uh, crossovers, luxury crossovers, especially with European brands. The Macan is everywhere now. Those things are like roaches around Boston. Um, so, yeah, I mean, with an Alpha badge, I, I feel like that's a that's a product that's that's probably got more potential than the the julia it's the the right vehicle for this market um but again like you know where's their stomach i haven't seen that that fiat chrysler has really had a a stomach uh to pull through with some of the plans that have been laid out like we we see constant realignment of the plans and like oh yeah that thing that was going to happen yeah it's not happening now (laughs) so yep I don't know. Um, yeah, that that's about my take on it. It, it, it. Sounds like you agree. Pretty much, yeah. All right, good. Well, <laughs> then we're we're done. <laughs> All right. Um, we have a Facebook page now. Uh, so Wheel Bearings uh, Media is out there. Um, that's our podcast. I'm sure you can find it. Uh, also, you can uh, email us at wheelbearingscast at gmail dot com. We are uh, at wheelbearings no vowels on Twitter. And uh, yeah, I'm Boston underscore auto. You are at Sam Abel Smead. Uh, I think I got everything right. We don't have a phone number this time. <laughs> uh, no, I think that's about it. Uh, you know, if you want to if you want to send us uh, your email or comments, uh, you can use the contact us link on the uh, the web page at Wheel Bearings Media. Um, and um, oh, and we'll have, reviews. you know, as usual, we'll have some links in the uh, in the notes along with the episode on the site. Uh, so if you're looking for 
if you want to read uh, Cheryl Connolly's uh, trends report, uh, we'll have a link to it there, uh, as well as the other stuff uh, that uh, we've written in various places, uh, you know, including on my company blog at Navigant Research. Um, that's about it, I guess. Yeah, so go listen, go forth and prosper, leave us some uh, feedback uh, and some reviews on iTunes or whatever other podcatcher you're using. And, um, yeah. and tell all your friends. Exactly. Tell everyone. Uh, and we'll catch everybody next time on Episode 7. All right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.